Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. Today's show focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Christina Lulich. And I'm David Escobar. And here are this week's feature stories. For New Yorkers in the urban jungle, garden spaces and friendly neighbors are often considered a luxury. But queer feminist artist Sheila Pepe says she's trying to change that narrative. Her new sculpture, My Neighbor's Garden, at Madison Square Park, aims to start a conversation about how we define and interact with communities. WFUV's Avery Loftus sat down with her to discuss the gardening materials that make up her first outdoor exhibit. What was your inspiration behind this exhibit? It's something I've done inside of, and the whole idea was kind of infiltrating male space, or institutionally male, not not specifically male, with uh, a home craft made by immigrant women, mostly. You know, it's what my grandmother brought from Italy and what she taught her daughter and what my mother taught me. You talked a lot about infiltrating the spaces where your art is showcased. And I know for this project that you had collaborators that either were beginning crocheters or experts. So I'm wondering what that collaboration experience brought. I wanted to gather groups of people in my neighborhood, but I wasn't sure how. It's not something. And I didn't want to just tap all the artist networks that I had because I I just didn't want it to be another layer of a kind of invisible art school. All kinds of different people showed up. It was great. Amazing conversations were had. There were a bunch of, you know, there's some teachers, there's some some art school people from different schools, some theater people, um, some people who had their own crafting business, you know, and then the conversations would just roll on from there. And it was a lot of fun. And then the folks, it felt, People said it felt like I was the teacher, but I, I just felt like I was the facilitator or it just felt like a open studio if I were teaching. It's like, I'm over here if you have any questions. That is exciting. And you mentioned how this is kind of entwined with the community. So I wanted to lastly ask you about how you see the New York City community interacting with this exhibition while it's in Madison Square Park until December. I did go one day and somebody was like sitting under it as if it were a canopy, but it weren't, but it isn't. I mean, it it was kind of funny. Um, So they were getting a little shade maybe sometimes and then still getting a tan. So it was like the best of both worlds. This experience makes me think differently about community possible communities like my idea of communities generally either so specific that it's just me and my friends or my colleagues or so abstract that it's just like all these people who don't talk to each other and somewhere in there is a place where people who disagree still talk to each other and that's that's what I'm aiming for. That was WFUV's Avery Loftus talking to artist Sheila Pepe about her sculpture My Neighbor's Garden. The piece will be on display at Madison Square Park until December 10th. Fordham University history professor Asaf Siddiqui is the co-writer of a new book that breaks down the history of modern pop music. So to get a better sense of the roots of today's pop sound, I talked with Professor Siddiqui about everything from the TikTokification of music to some of his favorite songs in the book. Something I can tell from the set list, if you will, in this book is the diversity of the music. 
It's not just pop, but also rock and rap, everything in between. So why was that diversity so important to you? I knew what I didn't want to do, which was just focus on one genre. I, I knew that right off the bat because pop music is so wide and expansive. And I also knew that I didn't want it to be about a bunch of rock bands. That's also, you know, I wanted to take pop music and everything seriously. And the other guiding thing was I wanted it to be everything from the 60s to now. Uh, but a lot of it was deliberate. I did want not to have one genre, one type of pe person. I wanted to have a gender, uh, some sort of gender distribution. Those kinds of things were in the back of my head. Yeah, for sure. I feel like nowadays music can seem purely commercial, kind of money grabby, but the music in your book is highly subversive and countercultural. So how do you capture that history? The striking thing for is that the history of pop has a long tradition of engaging in important social issues and even things that are seemingly just kind of frivolous and throwaway three-minute pop songs can often talk about something very important and deep. One of the other things I'm thinking about is this idea of the life cycle of a song that you touch on in the book and what songs can tell us about their time periods. So what are some of those moments you talk about in the book? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to get at, through each song, get into that moment of time in history. So if it was, for example, Bowie's Rebel, Rebel in 74, and the author, Glenn Hendler, who is a professor at English at Fordham, you know, he sort of really tries to tap into what's going on in radio in America at that time. Um, and all the all the songs, to some degree or other, do that. I think uh, MIA. I think the essay really tries to get at something in the post 9/11 world. You could talk to me about MIA all day. Paper planes is so good. But on the other side, could you dive a little deeper into the song's sort of cultural commentary? Um, I just started to sort of deconstruct it a little bit. You know, it samples. It has some cool samples from The Clash. It has a kind of this sort of awesome comment on, you know, the cash register, ka-ching, that sound, and the, the guns firing up. I thought that was really cool, that sort of balance between capitalism and sort of violence. But more to the point, I was also interested in her story. She's a British citizen of Sri Lankan origin. And what it meant for maybe a brown person to suddenly get super famous in the world of pop, Western pop. And I, I just wanted to sort of deconstruct that a little bit. There's also a gender story that I wanted to tell because she had put together this song. But the questions to her were always about, well, who's who's the engineer behind it? Who's the guy behind it? And, she, and naturally, she was very defensive. You know, she's, she's the one who made the song. So I wanted to track a little bit how our expectations of technology and recording studios are very gendered. We just expect there's some brilliant engineer guy doing all the stuff. And that song was a wonderful way to talk about those issues of how even in this sort of supposedly progressive world of pop, we still go back to these old patriarchal notions of, you know, men get to do the engineering and women just sing. And 
she's very much in charge of her whole complete image and everything. And I wanted to get at that. The thing I'm most captivated about in this new world of music is this whole process of consuming music and how that's changed since the 60s with streaming services and TikTok. But in the broadest sense, how has technology changed the music industry overall? Yeah, I mean, this is a profoundly important question, I think. And technology has just really fundamentally shifted the way we consume music um, probably in the last 10, 15 years. For, for the most part in the 20th century, let's say beginning the 1930s and 40s, we would have to buy records. Streaming really disrupted that that trade sort of uh, of consumption. Well, for the most part, almost everything that's ever been made is at your fingertips right now in an instant. And that I think brings to it the issue of maybe 20, 30 years ago, there was this notion, there was this relative scarcity. So you had to go and go to a record store and get something. And maybe it wasn't there at the record store. You would have to come home without the song. But now you have the song at your fingertips all the time. And I think that changes our relationship to music because we, if everything is available all the time, I think there's something that we, we don't necessarily understand the value of it because it's just there. Uh, whereas I think if you had to maybe work a little bit to access it, you might feel differently about the song itself. And I think that's just one of the changes. There's many more. I think the whole issue of TikTok, I think, is really interesting to me because, because of the length of the clips. They're not even quite three minutes. And so you don't even bother with the whole song anymore. You just want the little, the best part of it is in TikTok. And then you just move on. That was my co-host, David Escobar, speaking with Fordham professor Asaf Siddiqui about his new book, One Track Mind. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every week for more features exclusively from the WFUV Newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast every weekday at 3 for the latest local news and feature stories from FUV. And as always, you can find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Christina Lulich. And I'm David Escobar. And that's What's What.